What's happening? This kid koala. You're listening to the Dad Bod Rap Pod. Keep it locked. Stony Island Audio. And now it's time for the Dad Bod Rap Pod with your hosts Timon Carter, David Ma, and Nate Lamont. Three underground rap nerds walked into a bar. An argument ensued about who the goats are. The seed was a thought that would turn into a pod. Now fans worldwide say, Not a bad job, the ad hoc cab squad who chronicles the vanguard of hip hop at large. Rap taste slacked off, no need to be mad, dog. Look no further, it's the dad bod rap pod. pod, pod. San Jose, California. It is the Dad Bod Rap Pod. I am one half of your host today, Damone Carter, aka Dim One. I'm joined by my man's Nate LeBlanc. What's good, man? I'm good, dude. Um, I, I went out to uh, lunch with my cousin this weekend, and he was kind of making fun of me because I was wearing my tracksuit, and I have just like fully embraced it. I'm in my tracksuit yeah. era. I don't <laughs> usually go in public, but I did that day. And I was like, I, you can roast all you want, dude. I could not be more comfortable. I could not yeah. give less of a fuck. I'm just, I'm just like fully maintaining this like, uh, holy walnuts style, uh, <laughs> embrace of comfort in my life. Uh, why, why not, man? Uh, it's active wear. Yeah. I'm active. I'm an active yeah. guy. Uh, you want to hear something <laughs> funny? I, we What's went that? to this cafe in Palo Alto. It was on California street. I just wanted to try it. Cause it kind of looked good on Yelp. Mark Zuckerberg showed up, like in real life. Yeah, had had lunch with his friends. But were his were his wires showing? Four tables out. <laughs> was uh, his control panel exposed? Yeah, it's it's just so funny. Like I was telling my wife, and she made all these. She's like, "Was he translucent? Like, did he look yeah. weird? Did he blink? Yeah. Like, and like I wasn't, I was, I wasn't facing him. I was facing away. But um, I just thought it was funny. Like I've lived in the Bay Area for forty two years and basically never seen any famous tech people. And yeah. saw, saw one this weekend. Um, we were Which trying to figure all you out need to know about Palo Alto. Totally, <laughs> uh, food was good. Uh, <laughs> expensive but good. That's Palo Alto. Um, so I, we were trying to figure out if there was security. There, there has to be. There, there absolutely has to be. But it's like meta security, right? So it's just like four guys who had been eating there for two hours already. Who are ready to jump on you should you try to egg him i don't right. think he's in physical danger of like being stabbed or something not there not there but i think the danger is somebody coming up and like confronting him about how yeah they yeah have enough likes or follows <laughs> it's a bunch of boomers like who yeah. can who the fuck cares about facebook at this point in time that's yeah. not 49 Totally. As I say, two years from being 49. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Let's go 64. Uh, there you go. There you yeah. go. Raise, raise the minimum age. Speaking of Facebook, um, I dip into it occasionally because we do have a, a Facebook Dad Bod Rap Pod account and like weird shit be popping up around it. But what I saw, there is a hip hop 
Facebook scene. Um, and these folks are really enamored with um, Inspect the Deck's first verse on Triumph. So there's all these different videos that are like, oh, when Method Man first heard Inspect the Deck's thing, and there's like TikToks about it. There's all kinds of content around how um, incredible the verse is. And it is incredible. Don't give me it wrong. totally. I mean, I, yeah. I, I really can't make this as someone who, as you know, uh, sort of paid hobby talks about old hip hop shit in deep detail. Uh, but just focusing on that specific verse is a little weird. But we've, we've done a triumph segment. We've talked about it. It is an incredible table setting verse. Is it the best one? On that song or in the world? Yeah. Well, Facebook says in the world, but on that, yeah, it's on a that very song, good verse. It's very memorable. I bet you could, you know, if anyone who has gray hair in their beard, they know that shit word for word. Oh, well, word for word, word for word. Oh, no yeah. doubt, no doubt. Um, all, all the way. But I'm, I was like, oh, what an interesting point to coalesce around and bubble up. I just, we, we are in such an era of um, everybody's into their own little thing. I'm always very curious about what are the things that are still consensus. And apparently, right. uh, Inspect the Deck's first verse on Triumph is... That's funny. Uh, you know what it classic. is for a little bit closer to my age than your age? Is hmm. uh, that video where most F gushes about Doom. Yes. Okay. It's like that yep. That, that, that yep. has a 100% success rate. Like, everyone yep. loves that. Yep. And I it's would almost... go... I would go the second one if you're 20 years younger than us. It's Earl and Tyler meeting Doom yeah, at that meeting festival. Meeting MF Doom and yeah. and and the connective tissue there, MF Doom. <laughs> and then I I guess I would say, and this is maybe perhaps a little less mainstream celebrated, but very important for me. That video of uh, most deaf freestyling in Washington yeah, Square the, Park with his Park. backpack. Mm -hmm. That is that is the definition of like you know. Uh, uh, charisma. He's just like the most charismatic person. It's not the greatest rhyming you've ever heard. It's just he he looks and sounds exactly like an underground rapper. He was the the model of what you wanted from an underground rapper. He seemed like a normal person with this like superhuman charisma and some some chops. And it was just it's just For amazing. Real. Yeah, it's it's what the kids call the Riz these days. Um... <laughs> the actor. Uh, Riz Ahmed from uh, <laughs> I'm a fan no, of his have, acting, not his rapping. Uh, if he, if you have charisma, um, you have the Riz as the Riz. Wow, which, um, shout out to I, DJ Riz. I, I didn't know he was uh, <laughs> pulling that back probably three decades ago. Wow, the Riz is that like the Rona? Yeah, yeah, want to have the Riz, you don't want to have the Rona, you don't want to have the Rona. Um, That's very at, funny. At wow, the um, Riz. I wonder if uh, nobody beats the Riz, I think is what I would say to that. They're not, they're not ready for that, Nate. You just, you did, you did, uh, you connected like 50 years of pop culture in one foul swoop. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're happy to be here. Happy to be back for another episode of the dad bod rap pod. We have a dope interview on the other side of this segment. Uh, we talked to kid koala, um, about his, his, amazing next project um and and his incredible career but it got me his old stuff he's so cool man yeah no he was super super chill i mean if there was ever somebody who had the energy of their name like he Just, has a ch childlike quality and he was eating bamboo the whole time <laughs> He was just suspended from a tree, like hugging it with his arms the entire time while he did the interview. Um, no, he actually explains how he got his name. Uh, so stay tuned for that. But it kind of got me thinking about, and I did ask him this in the interview, 
I've always looked at his music being in this interesting cross section of actually it's like a three circle Venn diagram of turntablism, electronic music, and like hip hop, hip hop, right? Um, and it just kind of got me thinking about it's it's an interesting kind of netherworld of of fandom of of genrefication and like you know you we can all feel different ways about genres, but it, it took me back to when uh, trip hop and I'm sorry there's just not a better term for that which I'd love to come up with one because I hate trip hop as a term. But what, when did that whole thing first hit you? And what was your kind of gateway drug into the, into the trip hop era scene? Yeah, I, I remember very specifically, actually. And I was very deep into this stuff for a time, but it all kicked off. Um, my sister was a senior in high school when I was a freshman in high school and we went to the same high school. So it was okay. senior day. Okay. Um, 1996 I guess this was or 95 I don't remember it doesn't matter um and this dude came over to my house they were like these dudes were there to like pick up my sister to go to the beach or whatever they were doing for senior ditch day and if people don't know what that means it's like a day like when you're done with Mm -hmm. your classes kind of and you're just waiting out the end of school oftentimes American kids will like do some kind of organized event to like kind of rub it in the faces of the people running the school that they don't really need to be there anymore. That's senior ditch day. So anyway, and they go to drink wine coolers at the beach, but yes. Yes, basically. Yeah. That's what people usually do. I cut school so often by the time I was a senior, I was like, oh, is that today? Yeah, cool. Yeah, beach. <laughs> beach is just as good as me just being at home playing video games. Um, anyway, uh this dude came over to my house and he sat in my parents living room and I chopped it up with him for a little while and he had this white t-shirt on with this really cool image of a ninja throwing a record okay and I was like you're in is that that's like the coolest thing I've ever seen that image right. is like back then it's it's hard to understand in a world where you can get whatever you want whenever you want like sure I had sure. never seen that image before. I didn't know that Ninja Tune was a thing, but he was like, oh, it's this record label Ninja Tune and they do like this really cool electronic music or whatever, I'm paraphrasing. So yeah. that is just in the back of my mind for a long time. And then when I started buying records, I found it again. Yeah. And so um, one of, some of the earliest records, and we'll get into more of this later, was uh, DJ Vadim. was a very mm. big DJ Vadim fan. I really, really like his song, The Terrorist. With Motion Man, with Motion Man, and um, a bunch of his other stuff that USSR SR repertoire, that he did. the Isolationist with Anti Pop yeah. Consortium is one of my favorite underground hip hop records, and kind of falls into this category. So um, that, among a bunch of other things, but I, I just always remembered. I was like Ninja Tune. That's the that's the cool shit. This yeah. dude knew what was up. He looked like a kind of Hesher too. He had like long hair and a ponytail, <laughs> but he he had that's you appropriate. Know, he knew what was up. I don't know how he got that shirt still. I should have asked him how he got it. But at the time, I just want to know what it was. What about you? Uh, for me, it was probably around a similar time. And I just remember all these rumblings about a thing called Portishead. And like people were really excited about it. Uh, shout out to my my mentors, my dads in the rap game. The Derelicts, Hem Boogie uh, sampled Sour Times very early on and i was like what the fuck is this like these are beats like how sampled are they singing Beth's on beats? voice or just like the uh it sampled the remember? song sour it sampled the song sour times so they okay. have uh if, if you got the made a beat out of their beat yeah made basically made a beat out of sour times which a couple groups were doing at the time like it was a thing but it would it felt revelatory in the sense that um had never heard those kind of two textures combined 
there had been these weird attempts to like marry hip hop with other genres and they usually kind of sucked like especially stuff from Europe I was always kind of like yeah I don't I don't know about this but Portishead grabbed my attention in a particular way and it became this kind of um clarion call for a type of hip hop fan if you were so into this culture that you could like listen to uh Beth Gibbons like moaning over these tracks which nowadays you're like oh yes of course at that time it was a little bit different you know what i mean it was like if different. you're yeah. yeah, you're used to listening to like Red Man and shit. Um, you know, that that was kind of really different. But if it spoke to you immediately, that became how you knew who was like cool. You know what I mean? And it's interesting that that era became called trip hop because my theory is it was a way for folks who didn't want to be necessarily aligned with like hip hop to feel like they were cooler than it. So I always kind of hated it. But it was this idea that if you could vibe with this kind of a new door had opened up in this idea that like actually they weren't sampling everything like some of that shit they made and you could do these things with like pedals and all this kind of stuff so I just remember Portishead being a super big deal and wanting to get more into it I was into some of the Ninja Tune stuff um definitely uh push button objects mm-hmm. uh was was really one of the groups that I gravitated push towards button objects goes in more of what I would call like an IDM direction that's what another time right it's like right it's not it's not like we're like we're not going chronological here or anything but we're basically skipping the entire acid jazz movement and you have to like say that (laughs) (laughs) with uh, intention don't play the brand new heavies like that bro um (laughs) you have to give like the the uk like took this and ran with it like the ideas might have generated in america but like oh no no totally the, the bristol scene and like just like you know the jazz dancing scene in london like there's just so many like antecedents for what we eventually ended up calling trip hop or electronica or down tempo is a i would i feel much more comfortable with that with down tempo yeah Yeah. i Um, mean it it, it was one of those things though where like per usual the uk studies what we do and then spits it back to us in this way that's really interesting um but i kind of feel like especially with the acid jazz stuff it didn't grab me because i was like ah this isn't hip-hop enough like it doesn't you didn't, it didn't have to the like teeth. gray boy or anything like that i like, didn't i didn't like it yeah yeah i See, didn't I like it that, i thought that was cool back at the time but this so let's talk about this a little bit like this is music for like this is i think people use it as kind of like sonic wallpaper in a way that now they do like lo-fi beats where it's sure, like for sure i just i used to just spend like hours and hours of my life high and like reading and it's like i can't listen to Redman. great example yeah. while i do that i have to throw yeah. on some cruder and dorfmeister or some saint germain or some like you know something like um backgroundy and it's just like sure. i love beats i love the structure of being a head nodding person that's just what happens when a bee goes on when a you're around me and so it, it was like uh textural yeah and it, correct and maybe now i have more of an ear but i definitely felt at the time that the shit just didn't have teeth and i was like this is i guess this is cool maybe you could sample some of this even the brand new heavy's rap record um which is like what is it heavy rhyme experience heavy rhyme experience um it had moments uh but i w- in the end i was like ah, it ain't hard enough and there was something about portishead that i was like yeah it's it's okay i think that's a very good record yeah i love that record um i not not coming is different portishead is like a generational band like we now we now we know they're one of the great bands of that time right it's like them it, it, york 
tricky sure. for some people i've never been into tricky that much no, but uh, not, those not are those the massive attack also like they changed the yeah. world like they they taught yeah. people how to listen to beats and to combine them with live instruments and stuff in a different way and in a in a way that had uh what i hear when i what i would hear the acid jazz stuff is i heard musicians responding to something that they weren't necessarily a part of like it's like oh okay hip-hop is cool you know we were we were doing 70s jazz funk and now we'll do something that speaks a little to this time when I heard groups like, I think um, Massive Attack is a good example of it, they learned how to weaponize a beat in a way that um, was super interesting and I think made for some of the best quote-unquote trip-hop down-tempo stuff that happened. And then it kind of seemed like um, that just kind of got absorbed into the general culture of hip-hop. So I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on like USSR repertoire record like that why does that fit in that category and not just be like a hip hop record? Like what right. makes it- And, and uh, it's uh, the context matters. Um, song length really matters. Mm. Um, this like uh, a trip hop song was often six and a half to eight and sure. a half minutes. A mm -hmm. hip a rap song was, you know, three, three, and, three and, a half. and a half and now yeah. one and a half. Um, <laughs> If that so and and then like labels really mattered like you could you could go to a label like if you were getting something on g stoned which was cruder and dorfmeister's record a record label you had a good sense of what it was going to be and uh, that's trip hop not hip-hop because it's on g stoned and or case oh, i see or I see. um god i'm trying to think of some of the other ones there were there were so many ninja tune we've already been talking about like um, and, you know, Ninja Tune is founded in part by the guys from Cold Cut, and Cold yeah. Cut is, like, you know, it went from, like, club music to, like, sample music to then, like, this, I don't know how to say it without sounding corny, but, like, it's groovy. Like, there's something yeah. about yeah. a trip-hop or a, a hip-hop yeah. electronica kind of thing, a down-tempo record, where it's, like, you're just, you're settling into groups for long periods of time. The patterns do change. Yep. and textures and filters will change but it's like a it's a longer and i think just by its nature more backgroundy listening experience where a hip-hop song has to grab your attention immediately and yep. i i know i'm not like being scientific here but those are what i kind of think and i think that dj body might say he was making hip-hop and we're being stupid and like we're just thinking <laughs> about it wrong because he was on that label and that there's a lot of songs you could point to where that's but then you have something like let's like let's talk about Amon Tobin. Like I think he yeah. he straddles that line way better. Like yeah. there were many movements within his songs where like there would be this sick beat for like forty four seconds, and then this other new thing, and it was so like science fiction kind of. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that all matters too. And later he did more stuff with rappers and singers and all kinds of different stuff. But his early sure. stuff, which I was just amazing. Yeah, Amon Tobin like completely blew my mind when he came out. Um, that is more electronic music to me, but it's obviously using the tools and principles and structures of hip hop. It's just molding them in different ways, right? And and it's it's the foregrounding of beat as as opposed to rap to that point, beats had were like a vehicle for a rapper, right? And um, I mean, we're kind of not mentioning DJ Shadow here. He's like a extinction but, level event for- uh, But see, just, I don't know. I kind of feel like DJ Shadow is is a response to those things, but maybe because in, in labels matter, right? Um, because he was on Soul Sides, I'm like, no, he is DJ Shadow. 
He is a, I used to get into arguments with people. Like, don't give me he's part of this down-tempo shit. He is a hip-hop DJ. Uh, I would get so angry about it. But he was clearly using and innovating techniques that kind of started um, in that scene. But I never thought of him as being anything uh, other than a, a, a hip-hop ass guy and these are like goofy he is a hip-hop ass guy but he still made six and a half minute long like you know beat suites that would like sure. be be not be especially on preemptive strike like preemptive strike like oh, the, the so middle good. thing where it's all the yeah. 10 and a half minutes of what does your yeah. soul look like like yeah. those are those are trip-hop songs like all right nate yeah. you know what you got and me i love dj shadow and i wore right. a preemptive strike t-shirt i went to the fucking release i got the t-shirt i got the c i yeah, have got six records record. in this love... apartment one yeah. of them is preemptive strike i'm just yeah, exactly like... <laughs> uh yeah. the other one is kaskiat and controller seven <laughs> <laughs> and the third is uh shout out to our guy dave ma who can be here tonight um uh, shot me a copy of, of genocide and juice oh nice that's awesome the reissue that he wrote the uh yes. the liner notes for that's so awesome yeah. um what's it called so yeah dude um were you like did you go to i don't want to say clubs but like raves would have a downtown room like I, I, clubs would have a trip hop room there'd be one like of my, pillows and oxygen bars and all kinds of weirdo shit one of my my biggest regrets of the time that i grew up is not tapping in with that tougher like especially being in the bay area like there were so many experiences i deprived myself of because i'm like I'm not a raver. I don't wear neon. Like I don't do that. It was so much about what, and I'm sure you can identify with this in your backpackiest phases. It was so much about what I wasn't and right. really no, affirming, totally, totally, affirming totally. what I wasn't, but people would go and they'd be like, Oh dude, it's hella cool. Yeah. They have these, yeah, they have beat rooms. It's not all techno. Yeah. Um, I went, one, I went to one rave way too late in the game with some cool friends and I had a good time, but I was just, and I, and I knew it wasn't for me. And I feel like I have a very good, radar about knowing what is for me what and what is, isn't and like very few things are for me anymore um maybe to my detriment like you're saying but like i when i went i was like okay this is what everyone said it was and like i had a few that like almost became like casualties of like becoming a raver real quick yeah. and like wearing yep. all the stupid yep. beads and like sucking yep. on pacifiers and just yep. like i thought they looked stupid i was like and i always say like I've always felt very comfortable in underground hip hop culture. I like hooded sweatshirts. I like backpacks. I like head nodding. I like a little bit, just a little bit of break dancing. I like yeah. people who are really articulate and good with words. I like a 85 to 95 BPM. You know what I yeah. mean? I just know yeah, yeah. I fit in. I like smoking. I like doing, you know, like hanging out with your friends. I like the ciphers outside. I like the energy of hip hop. When you take it up into such a higher bpm i'm just uncomfortable i'm like ah, i know me, i know i i i sometimes uh when i'm listening to some of those bpms i giggle at how much you would hate this um kind of songs it... out of every 20 on dems gems <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> exactly i'm like uh nate's gonna hate this one uh i feel like, like Fote the, uh... is just okay no i'm just kidding <laughs> don't come for Fote. uh rapping Fote. Um, Mr. Fote. <laughs> uh, more more recently, I I think of things like uh, Fortet um, as as kind of really staking out that. That's a good um, one. That's Circles record. It was like that's yeah. to me like canonical trip hop. Like when me and my friends lived that record. Like yep. really really important record and kind of dealt with his crazy programming steez. Like uh, this this may make you laugh. Um, 
I think Paulo DJ Cutso, our our good friend, used to say this. They uh, when him and his crew, the Bangers, were like working on a song. At sometimes they'd get to a point where they were kind of stuck, and they're like, "What if we just square push her it out a little bit?" <laughs> and that that would mean like taking it like into like kind of a left field, doing some panning and like yeah. really crazy like you know studs and stops and you know you know what I'm saying by oh no no I it's funny I was just about to mention square pusher. There's that scene in High Fidelity where fucking Cusack's like, I'm going to play this record and like three people are going to come up. That's and... the beta band. Yeah. That's the, the beta band. When I was working band. at Street, when I was working at Streetlight, it was Square Pushers Music is One Rotten, Rotted Note. Yeah. If, if it was on in the store, three Somebody to four people are going to be like, what is this? How, yeah. how can I get it? Um, and I was, I was super into that record. It, it made me go, that's when I crossed over the boundary that um, you are not crossing over. Um, of like, oh, it can be like weird and fast, and I yeah. and I could fuck with it. Like it, yeah. it, it, it somehow. I did back then. I, I own Square Pusher Records, and like, do you, did you ever listen to Luke Vibert? No. Luke Luke Vibert was another good. dude in that scene, and he had a multiple different aliases, and he made more like kind of like groovy, like more okay. down tempo y but like really really cool programming and stuff. Like, would you go so far as like the most chaotic moments of an Aphex Twin? Yes. Well, mm, at the I time, see, when it, no. Like some of that yeah, shit gives at the me time, a headache, no. dude. Even yeah. <laughs> even back then, I'm like, okay, dude, this is like, there's like 25 different things happening. Autiker, same thing. I like, was about to say Autiker. Respect the hell yeah. out of them. Would go to a museum exhibit of all their art and listen to it in the headphones. But like after like 10 minutes, I'm like, okay. How about, Sometimes... about have like? I never say this to artists, but can you have less ideas? <laughs> <laughs> you should say it to artists. Uh, I feel like some music, I just didn't do the drugs. Yeah, and I feel like if you don't do the drugs, you don't have the kids don't do drugs. But if you do, test them. Um, uh, I feel <laughs> like if you sometimes... do. There's this Autecker thing that came with a DVD, and you should really mm-hmm. watch it. It was like a fractal thing. This like yes. cube was turning into all these different things to the music. And uh, my dad came home one time while I was watching that, stoned out of my mind, and he was like, "Turn that off." <laughs> And I was like, yeah, I get it, dude. This is like, yeah, it's not it's even disturbing. for me. So it's definitely not for you. But like, I'm having a great time right now. It's like, come and on, also, Bob. like you're, the TV speakers aren't that good. So it's not like, of course it's not. not attacking me. You know what it's, I mean? It's more just rumble. But like, yeah, I just feel like there's experiences that I knew I didn't have access to because I wasn't, I wasn't on those things. It's kind of yeah. like, if you, if you never smoke weed, I don't understand how you understand dub. You know what I mean? Like, yes, it, I do know what you mean, but yeah, so, I, I can never know about and go back to not understanding it, but I know what you mean. Yeah. 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 Have so I ever it, told you my dub story? This no. is a, this is a very brief story. At my family camping trip, me and all my cousins, since we were little kids, all play wiffle ball and we still play. Uh, <laughs> it's, we do this every summer and we used to try to play music during it. And this is when I was really like consciously about my music taste and I wanted everyone to know how deep into music I was and stuff I don't try anymore and it's made my life in- infinitely better smart but we were playing I think a King Tubby uh compilation me and my cousin Joe was both super into dub especially in the summer and especially with like one yeah. beer and three joints that's like oh, a perfect, perfect like dub thing in the summer right so we're playing with a ball kind of standing in the outfield listening to King Tubby and my grandma we didn't know this at the time was asleep in a tent like 40 way right so she's kind of faintly hearing it and so at dinner she's like what were you guys listening to and we're like oh that's dub it's like a style of reggae that's more about production and she's like so do they call it dub because like they just like dub the same things over and over again (laughs) and I was like 
Yes. Kind of, that yeah. Is, that is why they call it that. You're fucking yeah. pretty smart, Grandma. <laughs> then she was like, never play that shit around me again. Shit no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. yeah, we, we kind of got the idea. We were like, okay, that didn't go over so hot. But she got it. Yeah, as a as a concept, and I probably as we will we'll round into the kid koala interview, Jamaica deserves more credit for what electronic music is and has become, right? Like to people who know, it gets tons of credit, right? Um, I think it gets credit as like that. This is where rap and reggae came from, but when you think about dubstep, right? Like this is just a, it's these are all variations on Jamaican kind of musical musical ideas and structures even this thing of like oh a six to ten minute thing that doesn't just is kind of there and it comes in and it comes out um is i don't know if you saw this but um and i don't i don't have the article in front of me and i'm not really super educated on this so i don't know why i'm bringing it up but like some of the people who played on some of the famous rhythms are Mm -hmm. looking into being monetarily credited for pe- things that use those rhythms and as far as Ooh. i understand this is like a big breach in like kind of like the culture yeah. of jamaican music which has become yeah. worldwide music and it's because yeah. reggaeton has built itself up on those rhythms yes. and there's so much money in it now and it was yeah. different when it was like nine different versions of the same song that were only played at these sound clashes are only for the heads but now it's yep. like they built this whole multi-billion dollar genre out of it and they're kind of like yeah. what about us and yeah. so yeah I mean, oh that's something, interesting something that i think will bubble up over time if they can win a lawsuit or get some precedent i think that's going to change music a lot the beautiful oh, things wild. about what you're talking about is the the birth of all of this culture is like the idea of versions and rhythms and things yep. that are available yep. for use for everyone they're like they're the water you swim in when you're making yeah. these kinds of music. And I, that to me, it's just very beautiful, very, um, I guess, passe at this point. I don't know. I don't know. Where uh, this kind of. I mean, I feel like in um, I have heard and seen things about how in in Jamaica, there was really no copyright type of laws. So people yeah. would just do versions and versions of even pre uh, what we know as reggae. People were just doing versions of songs. But you know, yeah, they've given so much music to the world. And like, I wasn't even, when I was talking about electronic, I wasn't even thinking about reggaeton and Afrobeat, which are both grafted, right? Both from huge like electronic 90- music, world defining, right. like that's the right. sound of now when those are both electronic right. musics. Oh, um, I just read this really good article. It was on Passion of the Weiss. It was written by this dude named, I don't know exactly how to pronounce his middle name here, but Adam Balalo. And Mm. he is a film director. He makes documentaries and he made some of the first MF Doom videos. So he has written about that for, uh, I think, I think he made the Greenbacks video. Okay. Um, Maybe Dead Bent, but I'm not sure. Um, And so he's written about that for Jeff's site. And uh, he made the movie Bomb the System. Have you ever seen that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like indie film of graffiti. And now he, now he works in documentaries and he made a documentary about Lee Scratch Perry. And he, in the article, he mentions that, um, they found financing for this documentary, but he needed to sign away his life rights to these like Swiss bankers or something through some like weird connection. Wow. And he goes, bring me the paper and $5,000 in cash in a brown paper bag and I'll sign it. And so they, it tells the story, right? <laughs> and so Adam or whoever, the people he's working with does that, brings it to him. Uh, Lee, Lee Perry was living in Switzerland at the time. He signs it and he's like, cool. Like, when do we film kind of? And, uh, there's like a 
parenthetical or like a bracketed thing underneath. And he's like, we later learned that Jamaicans don't believe in contracts and that he had signed his life rights away many times over the years. <laughs> he didn't Basically. give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> he, had, he had a price ready for it. He had a pen. He was yeah. like, oh yeah, totally. Yeah, bring that over here. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. want my life, whatever. Yeah, uh, bring me bring me your white man paper. Yeah, and it was, exactly. I, find I just it. thought that was so funny <laughs> and so fucking Lee Scratch Perry. Like he's just like, oh my God. Yeah, yeah, totally, Genius. whatever. Yeah. Genius. Um, so we started with, uh, I don't know where we started, but we ended on Lee Scratch Perry, which is a great place to yeah. end. Maybe in the uh, outro, we can touch on the like prefuse debris, yeah. friend of the program, Daedalus, the LA yeah. beat scene. Like there's so much more to talk about. There's such a fertile connection between all this stuff. Absolutely. And probably one of the um, most fruitful producers of this tradition is Kid Koala who uh, has been straddling the world of turntablism, electronic music, and hip-hop for like two-plus decades now. Uh, he breaks down his origin story, how he got the name, uh, working with all these amazing artists, and you're about to hear it right now on Dad Bod Rap Pod. shape to pop culture this week is no different joining us in zoom we have dj composer gamifier kid koala what's happening man not much glad to be here it's gonna be fun yeah yeah thanks for coming on man um i definitely admired your work for a long long time i'm i'm gonna start at the beginning beginning though and ask you where did the name come from for the longest time since back in the days i thought you were from australia and yeah, just... people from Australia think I'm from Australia. But <laughs> there was a beverage called Koala Springs, which I'm not endorsing. Okay. It was a sugary soda sort of beverage back then. I'm not saying it's – anyways, my mom would go to Costco and buy flats of the stuff. So if you were actually okay. um, at the house, if you were older than 30 years old, you would get – tea or coffee offer but if you're younger you can like milk juice water or koala springs so there's just empty bottles of stuff everywhere when i started djing there would just be record sleeves everywhere and empty bottles of this stuff so it just became this weird nickname my friends would say koala kid you know mm, uh, koala okay. kid is koala kid and and you know back back in high school when i was djing basement parties and high school parties You'd always try to make something a little more of it, make a little flyer, and they would always write Koala Kid right. on the turntables and stuff. So it wasn't until um, I started battling, I guess, in the mid-90s that it kind of flipped it around. What's your DJ name? Like, oh, I have to commit to something now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you well, ever – you have well, a you have a very youthful look. Do you ever regret going with Kid? Like, is there – because there's no getting out of that now. Yeah, you know, somebody just asked me this in a, at a – in another interview, they said, "What you know? When are we going to drop the kid?" <laughs> Party your name? I, said, I don't know. Never. Man. When will you debut I mean, Adult it, Koala? It, yeah. Adult Koala, koala Man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, koala curmudgeon. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's like I don't know. I mean, I guess it's a little more like like in the jazz tradition, you know, Kid Ori and right. mm -hmm. Kid Shake and those 
people i don't know i get even then i have records of kid ori where he looks like he's 80 years old on the cover <laughs> <laughs> like this is it the kid um i guess at one point he was the youngest person in the band and right. they just outlived most of them i guess. I, don't, I don't know i mean definitely when i was first starting i was always the youngest person in the band that's no longer the case these days but um still feel still feel like you know got a lot lot more to check out <laughs> and try so i don't know Absolutely. i still feel like i'm in kindergarten sometimes <laughs> well you're looking great man you're looking great oh thank you um, <laughs> um, Is there, should we talk about our, our like our skin regimens and stuff <laughs> i just don't go outside that's my secret i just stay in the studio and I don't go outside. when like, we reference routine i mean skin routine um, <laughs> all right but <laughs> right, well you know yeah again thank you so much you've had such a career and we've, we've been admiring it so far and i just um so we're going to be jumping around a little bit but my first question i just always wanted to, uh, i've always been a big fan of carpal tunnel syndrome specifically the track with money mark you know with the typewriter um oh, that track yeah the very the, the very first thing i did with mark actually yeah um yeah. and i i've always loved that so much and i kind of just wanted to know how it was putting the song together and how was it working with money mark well mark was a, a huge mentor i've been listening to him since um since his his work with the beasties and i remember on the, like the early version of the internet it said hey money mark's got these 10 inches 10 inch records that he just put out which would become Mark's keyboard repair album. Mm -hmm. And um, it's anyways, I always loved what he did. I loved his, uh, the instrumental tracks on the check your head record and um, Ill communication and whatnot. So around that era, I had ordered that off the BC site. I had actually sent Mark a check. <laughs> <Actual> check. <laughs> and it was one of those transactions where, um you know you just send away for something and then you hope that it comes back and you're not just sending money into the ether and I never got the record but <laughs> I remember seeing him like later I, I forget like we crossed paths later I remember I was 17 here trying to get into um I was just starting at college here and I just had some tickets to to the check your head concert and i rallied like everybody in my dorm like we're all going it's gonna be a wicked and we get there and everybody gets in but i was still 17 because i was born in december so it's my first year in college and um i got bounced i couldn't get into the show <laughs> so everybody and you know you think there'd be some solidarity there but everyone was like no man we're gonna see the concert have fun <laughs> but at one point um i crossed paths with mark and I said, hey, you know, I never got that record I ordered from you. He's like, really? And he was like, <laughs> he's like, oh, man, I'm sorry. You know, it's one of those things. Then this was much later after we, we'd already started touring together. But um, yeah, what's it like working with Money Mark? He's a mentor. He's just he's he's like a, a wise old musical sage. So I learned so much from him about music, about blues scales you know I actually started in classical music that was my my first instrument was classical piano so oh, wow. it kind of opened me me uh, like up to the blues blues scales and taught me sort of different ways around the keyboard you know how I could approach the keyboard and I still use those things that he taught me and 
I mean, I remember on tour, it was like he would dig for VHS tapes of old Thelonious Monk videos. And he just he's like, here's your school. Watch this, you know, and then wow, well, something else he bought. Oh, yeah. I remember we were at a record store. I forget where we were on the we were on the Hello Nasty tour and he bought this for me. Wow. The, the box set for yeah, the complete sessions with all the harmony takes and all that yeah, stuff. So like alternative yeah, so cool. there's just like just the vocal just whatever and he said just study this this is school for you uh so just course, so, because like this is an audio like, medium i should tell the listeners you just held up the uh beach boys pet sounds complete pet sounds. Uh, studio sessions box set exactly and you know i'd listen to the beach but I, I remember getting the tape i remember listening to surfer girl in my room and stuff when i was a teenager like in in eighth grade or something but i didn't you know he he turned me on to this record he said get this and this box that just came out he was really excited about it and he said this is school just listen to that over and over and it's true i still i still listen to that and study it, you know? so that's awesome it gave you good vibrations me. what's that they gave you good vibra- vibrations absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> i mean he taught me a lot even about live shows so he brought me on tour in, in 98 when his album push the button came out and um yeah it was funny it was one of these things i'd sent him my scratch crash ratchet tape and that's that's you know I, I just wrote a letter like hey if you have 30 minutes to piss away you can listen to this tape yeah i didn't know whether he was going to get it or not um because he was on tour of the beasties and they were just kind of everywhere at that moment so i got a phone call one morning and uh he he says uh, is this eric i'm like hey yeah, hey man what's up he's like this is mark and i'm like oh hey mark because i was playing in a band called bullfrog at the time and um the the guitar player from the band's name mark so i, I just went in and was like oh it's mark i just woke up say hey mark yeah yeah when we're gonna rehearse today and you know we gotta you know maybe add some new things for the set next week and stuff and he's and he didn't understand when i was talking but he's like um i don't think you know who this is and i said who is this he goes mark i'm like yeah mark and he's like no no no, mark from la and i said i don't know any marks from la and he goes money mark and i said why <laughs> he actually called me and he said he he said uh, he liked that cassette, that Scratch, Scratch, Ratch, Ash tape. And then he um, he asked if I, I wanted to play turntables in his band on that tour, you know, which wow. then. Yeah, so we started with that and then and then Hello Nasty came out and he had to obviously play keyboards with the Beasties there. So then we um, got we got the opening slot on that Hello Nasty tour with Tribe, too. So it was a dream for me. It was a dream. I was just pinching myself <laughs> what's happening right now. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing, yeah. man. Um, you mentioned 10 inch records earlier. You, your early stuff also came out when you initially got down with a uh, ninja tune, like scratch, 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 parts of it become mm-hmm. scratch happy land. And right. um, I think it's emperor's new clothes. Yeah, or... Emperor's main course in Canton. Yes. Thank you. Yes. I knew yeah. it was around there somewhere. Um, and then I know there's at least one other one there sitting right behind me um i guess um what i wanted to dave and i were talking before you logged on and we were talking about how we we were very into turntablism and followed it very closely and we're from the bay area where there's mm. like a style right like the city is yeah. 35 minutes uh, away from where we're sitting but that we always admired how you brought a kind of both a musicality and a sense of whimsy to mm. it that felt really different at the time and felt really needed at the time and i think that um 
those two things come together really well in the song Drunk Trumpet. Um, I'm sure you've had to answer this many times over the course of your career, but can you talk a little bit about how you came up with that and like just where, like, I I, I know it's impossible to pinpoint where ideas come from, but as much as you can, if you can take us down the memory lane of how you came up with that as an idea. Yeah, um, I grew up in a household where my father, he probably had about this many records, like, I don't know, 80 records, but half was classical and half was jazz. and so I grew up listening to kind of vocal, mainly vocal jazz, you know, Luke Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday, that type of thing. That was always playing in the house. And then I remember, I mean, Drunk Trumpet, it was just me kind of seeing if I could bend notes over a 12-bar blues originally, just trying to see if I could keep up and and hear a melody in my head and see if I could teach my hands how to bend that melody out. Um, but the first time I tried it, it sounded a little, you know, pitchy. And so it's just, I kept it, but it was fun. Like I was up there, you know, in the take, just making it happen. It was like, oh, this is kind of fun. I could, I can see a, a future fluency possibly. And, but that take, when I listened to it, I said, oh, this sounds kind of inebriated. So hence drunk trumpet, you know, but I remember trying, trying it out at a couple of live shows and um yeah it kind of worked <laughs> people were kind of or the, you know they were scratching their heads going why but at the same time it's like i see see you know hopefully see a, a future possibility there you know something i would later try to refine in, in some like a version of basin street blues or something like that but that was my first take at it just kind of bending notes you know that's awesome um I'm going to ask this question and feel free to to punt on it as um, I don't care about genres or labels, but I used <laughs> to get I used to get sore back in the, the late 90s when I would see your stuff filed away in electronica in the record store. Oh, yeah. Um, instead of hip hop. Do do you have a stake or a feeling on where your music should be classified or? or do you <laughs> I don't know. Yes. Uh, um experimental <laughs> okay i okay. wouldn't be lying to people but it's funny it's yeah it came out i remember carpal tunnel uh being released it was released on ninja tune which is kind of known as a club centric so it would always be racked under dance i always <laughs> thought that was kind of really yeah. funny because yeah. that's a fun dance DJ, good luck at dancers the time, i was djing clubs all the time and i said i wouldn't dance to any of this stuff like that wasn't the point <laughs> of this record at all and so I, I don't know, I felt like early on, like the context, I can understand why people were putting their own. Oh, well, that's where a lot of the ninja artists were racked. So I kind of went there. Oh, he's a DJ dance. You know what I mean? Like mm. you'd have to be a pretty um, adventurous contemporary dancer, I think, to like try to choreograph to carpal tunnel syndromes. <laughs> but I don't think it's like dance music per se, you know. Uh, modern dancers, Kid Koala has issued a challenge. Oh, exactly. <laughs> Let's go. Like your regular chickens, the 45 minute, you know, <laughs> dance extravaganza. Um, one of the, one of your projects that you've been a part of, which I, which I feel has resonated has been the Deltron uh, projects. And I remember I spoke to Automator like years back and he was like, oh yeah, Koala would blow me away because he would come in and just scratch everything um, in key and just, just make everything like so super melodic. And I, it always made me wonder, and, and especially once the 
uh, instrumental versions came came out because then your, your stuff was way more pronounced. Mm-hmm. Um, how were those sessions like? And, and, and how was the idea brought to you? Um, let me see. I remember the day Deltron was born. And I think we were at Tibet Freedom Concert with the Handsome Boy Modeling School. We were in, in the tent, like backstage with Paul, um, Dan, Del. And Del was just talking about this character they had in his head. Like, yeah, Deltron Zero. I had this idea, just wrapped it up. And, and I could see there were just, I'm watching Del and Dan just sort of bounce this idea around. And that was the day, I think, because I think pretty much like a month later, Dan was like, oh, remember that thing Del and I were talking about? Well, it's happening. <laughs> you know, I'm going to come out to Montreal and I want you to lay some turntables down on a few of these tracks. So that's that's mm. basically what Dan would do. He would come see me in Montreal. He likes Montreal anyway. So um, there's a good food scene. There's a good record store scene. There's, you know, it's it's all his kind of favorite things. So um yeah we just record the turntables here in montreal and i think that like there's a track called saint catherine street or something i mean that's a street here in montreal Mm. (laughs) on the deltron album that at the time used to be kind of a i don't know i guess it would have been like the the equivalent of of times square or something in the 80s or something was a little shadier and now it's kind of cleaned up and very touristy and stuff but at the time it was that so I, I remember when when he said oh we're gonna name this one st catherine street and they had all these cameos of people you know a ragtag motley crew people just just featuring on there and i said oh yeah so there's a bit of my there's a bit of montreal you know vibe in there for sure um regarding the the i don't know the more like harmonic turntable work i mean that really came from mark that came from mark playing with bullfrog being the kid trying to learn um i remember even during mark's set and push the button there would be some songs that were more like instrumental bc's tracks that he would do like push the button for instance and it'd be pretty obvious like oh just lay in a, a bass tone groove or something but then there'd be other tunes where you know mark would just throw it at me so what can you you have something to throw on this or and it just didn't seem like oh that track doesn't need like a real show-offy percussion speed solo on it or something I just need to try to support the the vibe of the tune so that got me kind of digging for different types of source material to scratch but also different ways of playing just to you know lift with the bridge or like follow the chord structure in the course and just just treat it more like sometimes like a, a keyboardist would or a backup vocalist sometimes and so it just depends on the tune really but um I think working with with Dan is always fun because he's very how can I put this he's very visual with his direction like okay he'll say something like all right on this track say it was you know uh, he's like we need something like rock skipping over water kind of thing but then we want to end up <laughs> you know what I mean but like a reverse ice skating sound or something like you know some, something something he just throw these kind of real visual things that I like oh I know just the sound and, you know um and and so it was uh it was it's always fun to to work there and obviously Dell's lyrics at the time were already in the tracks which were so evocative already in tone and and 
his storytelling and, and, and how clear he is with visually explaining the scene. It was just, it was fun to just kind of dive into that, that world. Yeah. That's so awesome. Uh, awesome. We, we love that record. And I think your yeah. contributions bring a, a whole different element to it and really help with the world building and the kind of uh, science fictive nature of the whole thing. So it's, yeah. just, it's just really strong work. Um, wanted to touch a little bit on Newfonia Must Fall. I know um, mm -hmm. some editions of it or maybe all editions of it, my edition of it came with like a big comic book that you you yeah. drew and um, it's like it, you, it's also kind of a world building um, presentation but as a kid koala yeah. solo project can you just talk about um that project and did you come up with kind of the characters and the drawing first did you come up with the music first like how did how did that all come together that one actually came with the um the story and the book first so what happened was i was i'd released a, a small comic book with carpal tunnel syndrome and i think i was on a news show somewhere where I was presenting that work and then uh this lady named Emma Mackay she worked at a, a publishing house called ECW Press and she's she saw that and and basically said oh I think this kid has a book in him maybe we should give him a shot and then all of a sudden I'm having like a lunch with a book publisher and you know my my first album just come out and I'd been touring at that point for four years, maybe like 200 cities a year or something like wow. that. Mark and Beasties and um, with Deltron and, um, you know, th that that type of thing. Even she she was basically saying, um, you know, can you write a book? And I said, well, what is what does a book entail? Like before I signed this contract to write a book, <laughs> exactly what kind of book are you looking for? She said, well, 100 page 10,000 words, you know, and I didn't, it had been a while since I'd done essays where I was counting words. It's like 10,000 words. It sounds like a lot. Like, you know, pages. I said, what would I write about? And she said, well, I don't know, like whatever, whatever interests you. And that was kind of too broad a, a thing to throw on me. So I said, okay, I guess I'll write a book about touring being a touring DJ, like some tour hacks like how to do your laundry in the sink when you can't find a laundromat and you have to get on a plane and three and it was all this I don't know it I, I went two pages into it or something and I just said this is the most boring book I, I wouldn't even read this book it's horrible so I just started drawing like as I always do that's kind of my default doodling meditative exercise and I started drawing um these characters and one of them was the robot that ended up being the the main character in new phony must fall so fast forward about three years so i've missed every deadline like six deadlines in a row <laughs> and i was kind of just like you guys want your advance back it's cool it's taking me longer than i thought they're like no, no no just show it show it to us when you when you're ready and then what i ended up delivering instead of 100 pages was over 300 pages and instead of 10,000 words there's no words it was a dialogue free kind of screenplay to some silent film about a robot trying to write love songs and i i knew there was a very high possibility that, that they'd want their advance back and it was like this is totally not what we asked for <laughs> and but they read it and and they said we love this we, we want to put it out even though they're not a graphic novel publisher or anything and it was actually emma's um idea where she said hey i noticed there's this theme he's trying to write this love song 
in in you know, but he can't sing. He's trying to write this love song. He can't sing. What does that love song sound like? So she kind of passed it to me, and I said, I don't. Well, I don't know. I mean, um, why? And she goes, I think it'd be cool if we packaged it with a soundtrack, at least that love song. Mm. If you want to just do mm. one song, and so I think I ended up doing ten little pieces the first version of Newphonia and that was all done on on Wurlitzer piano which I learned about through Mark of course and I finally found one and I, I had one in the studio and it was recorded on my little cassette four track with a um and then I just laid in sort of you know turntable violin counterpoints I would just scratch in and try to make a little soundtrack out of it yeah man uh that's amazing I feel like your career just keeps getting more like he's doing what now um and it seems like the book project was the genesis of like what like he's doing what yeah. now? um on that tip uh you've done a lot of movie work um you've had mm. songs in movies as well as doing some scoring for movie and, and television mm. how did that come about and do you ever does it do you change your approach when you're working on projects like that yeah um i think how did it come about? I guess the I first started doing some scoring work with the film board here, the National Film Board of Canada. I was asked to do some the boards of Canada. No, I'm sorry. The, yeah, exactly. <laughs> sorry. I, think, I actually think that they were they. I think that name comes from the right. fact. Even that though like, they're Scottish, they admired the sound tones of the films from the National Film Board. Well, of yeah, the film I believe board of Canada. How that came yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, because they, you know, back in the '70s, I remember they'd make us watch the National Film Board, you know, documentaries about the polar ice caps or whatever like this type of thing but it always has some kind of moody synthy music in there it was kind of cool um but yeah so it started with that just kind of dabbling in in that and then um the animators actually started reaching out to me I guess a lot of them just could relate to some of the details that was in a record like some of my best friends or DJs or carpal tunnel syndrome or something it was, it was kind of cartoony in nature and still mm. I started doing more stuff like that with that you know like Teletoon and um those channels first doing bumps and things like that and then uh the film score work let me see the first thing of note I guess would have been uh Edgar's stuff like remixing stuff for Edgar on Shaun of the Dead so he was yeah at the he was at the show in London during some of my best friends with DJs. This was the year Newphonia came out, mm. um, 2003. And we did a show um, in London and in Dingwalls, I think down in Kensington Market. And it was the first time I was trying this not dance floor show. So it was a seated cabaret style show. Mm. We had eight turntables. And I wanted to do tracks like Skanky Panky, which had eight layers of me scratching, but I wanted it live. So we had three DJs, eight turntables, us running around reloading turntables trying to hit all the cues wow. and it was it was fun it was kind of a comedy club vibe almost because everyone was just sitting yeah. you know chilling and 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 um that kind of thing anyways Edgar Wright was there he was I think Vez who worked at Ninja Tune she she did the PR for the label with friends with uh with him or Oscar his brother and then invited him down to the show and then he had a great time and then he talked to me after he's like hey i want to i want to show you this film i'm cutting together and so th that's really that it was just kind of happenstance 
I think if you look at um, Shaun of the Dead, if you look on the on the walls, you can see all these Ninja Tune posters, including like a Kid Koala or Amantoven Kid Koala poster that's in some of the sets. I think it was just oh. they were really into the the music coming from the label. And then so I met him through that. And then that kind of continued um, through Scott Pilgrim versus the world and Baby Driver. Um, same thing like ryan johnson for looper i met i just met him somebody introduced me to him and then i'd known about brick but he knew about carpal tunnel syndrome and we just met and and um for the one scene i know nathan johnson his cousin is the composer but he wanted this one track for this one scene at the bell aurora and in in looper Mm. um yeah so so it was cool he kind of just um let me take a swing at it I don't know. These directors ended up just being at the shows. I, I don't really have like oh, I lived in LA or anything. It was, it was like same thing with Gatsby. I remember playing. We did our vinyl vaudeville show um, at the Echo Plex or something, Echo mm-hmm. Lounge, and um, three days later. I get an email from Baz Luhrmann in my phone. I almost deleted it because I thought it was totally <laughs> right. fake. And first, how did he get my email? And uh, apparently, if Baz Luhrmann needs your email, he can just find your email. He can find <laughs> it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But he basically said, "Hey, I like, I like, you know, your twit." At the time, that was the Twelve of Blues album that was out, and, and he's like, "I kind of like your your kind of turntable angle on this. Like, could you kind of play around with some twenties jazz on this score?" So I did a couple of cues for that, and I don't know, it just kind of keeps going it's really a fluke i'm not actually trying to (laughs) (laughs) but i guess they hear something yeah dig and and then it goes from there but i think a lot of a lot of directors are just into music like jason reitman i think you know when he asked me to do stuff for men women and children at first he wanted me to do more like cut up pastiche bit but then he showed me the film and and i said oh that's interesting it was a really kind of nuanced you know, emotional film. And I said, well, I, I do this kind of more ambient stuff in the wintertime up here. And I just threw a couple of tracks at him. I was like, what do you think of these? And he actually said, I didn't know you could make this kind of stuff. I'm like, yeah, it's a long winter up here. You know, we <laughs> down. And by down, I mean depressed. <laughs> he, was like, he was like, oh yeah, you know, I actually found, I actually found a couple of, of tracks and I, place them in the movie and I think they work really well and then he also said oh I really want this one track that I used to be in the credit sequence and he says but I hear a, a vocalist on it and so I was like okay um he's like do you know any vocalists that you think would sound good on it and then that that kind of gave me like the confidence to reach out to this one singer Emiliana Torini who's a mm. Icelandic singer one of my favorite singers for many many years and I don't know, I mean, just having like Jason be like, okay, there's a deadline and I hear a vocalist on it and I thought she would sound good on it. So I reached out to her and um, I said, I don't know if you're familiar with the director, Jason Reitman to Juno up in the air and all this. She's like, yeah, yeah, I love his films. I said, anyway, he's working on a new one and this is the track. And I thought maybe you want to listen to it and see if you could do something and she did she sang it back like into her phone or something and oh, sent wow. it to mp3 and i was like bawling and then i like <laughs> sent it to jason he's like it's perfect i'm like that's not it that's just her on the phone that's how good she is she just like wow. singing into her phone and it was like perfect take but i think 
she found she was on tour but she found some studio that she could track it and then sent me the the acapella and then i kind of like did the final mix on it but i don't know it just one door kind of opens the next one to see what's there (laughs) and then baz lerman's in your inbox that's a somehow i love it Yeah. Um, You know, you've had so many creative spurts through the years, but I want to move it to the present a little bit and give you a chance to um, touch on Creatures of Late Afternoon, uh, which comes with a board game. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. And I also really love the Leilani feature for um, Things Are Going to Change as well. Big fan of hers. Let people know about what what you're up to now. Okay. so this this album is called Creatures of Late Afternoon. I've been working on it for a few years mainly because there was a pandemic but also because the process of making it was like I had to record it maybe two or three times just because I wanted to go take every single layer through that turntable step so I actually have a record cutter downstairs and I would write the stuff in the studio um, you know play the drums bass guitar whatever saxophone whatever I can find and then cut those stems out to vinyl downstairs and then once it was on the turntable that's kind of my ground zero happy place and Mm. I could rephrase and sort of kind of remix stuff but the source material is already meant to fit in the track but then I could add that you know that rub that push and pull and the pickups of the turntables into it and so I wanted that that really hand cut vibe on it but um, basically the 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 idea was I'll show you this this is another thing. This is how I spent my time up there. So this is like a, uh, I don't know, it's like a two foot by two, or three foot scratch board drawing of all these creatures. Wow. <laughs> and they're playing. That's super dope. So here's a, here's like, here's a sloth on bass, you know. And here's a thing of course. <laughs> and like, here's a mantis on the SB1200. You know, and a, like a lobster on the clavinet. And I was just, I was just having fun. I was watching a lot of nature shows with my daughter and just drawing these creatures on instruments. And then I started thinking, well, what would that sound like if there was a mantis on the SV-1200 or of course. baseline would a sloth write if he played buzz bass, you know, it'd be real slow, long, like, you know, dry, you know, fuzzy tones. And so that kind of gave me this sort of, catalyst for going into the studio and creating the sound palette like cutting these vinyl tool records that I would use to make the the songs and so while that was happening um obviously the pandemic all the touring was like canceled or postponed and I was playing a lot of board games with my daughter so that's why you know we decided oh it'd be fun to have a board game that's so dope and then I started painting well, painting the board game, but then I painted all those creatures. So these are the cards you get. Like you get 150 game cards or something. So there's some creatures that play instruments. There's, um, you know, musical instrument cards and recording device cards that you get at the flea market. So basically, the, the the concept of the game is you actually tour around the board. And you go to these apartment parties and you meet these creatures and kind of collecting these cards and you're trying to put a band together. So you need a vocalist, a drummer, a bassist. Uh, and then um, you hit the flea market, you try to find a recording device and you know win some studio time, what have you. And then after some life experience, 
you can win life experience cards then you just try to write a song you collect a set of cards which will equal a song but then at some point like i thought oh well if you didn't have a complete set for a song you know maybe there's ways you can battle the other players for the cards you need so say say there's a there's a there's a spot here it's called staring contest so if you land on that you actually draw a staring contest card and you challenge one of the other players to a staring contest we beat them and you can take their base player or something like that you know what i mean <laughs> but i thought the funniest to, to have like a musical component so on each vinyl like there's two discs with the the package and so the, on each side like the first you know four or five tracks those are the album tracks and then it hits a lock groove so it would just end like it normally would on a normal record but if you skip over that lock groove, I've added these other musical bands on there that are just board game tracks. So they're not meant to be like listened to quote. They're more just timers for moments in the game. They become the soundtrack of the game. So say during the staring contest, you can queue up that staring contest track. And then while you're staring, there's this like creepy <laughs> tense music playing. And I think it would just add a little like musical dimension to it. I think it's like, the Jeopardy timer, only oh, okay. only funkier, <laughs> you know, with scratches. And stuff. Hey. But, but but the idea was was to just have it be this interactive, you know, board game that uses the vinyl to to, to bring that element into it. Wow, well, I think uh, I speak dope. for all of us when I say we are blown away by your creativity, both musically and in all of your other endeavors, and it's just so cool to see how you're career has progressed and you seem like you're just having fun with it and doing things that interest you and it, I, I just like we're, we're blown away it's so cool man yeah um as we kind of round to a close here i wanted to ask like how much did you used to practice and is that still a thing for you now do you go down and cut just yeah. for recreation still you get what i'm asking absolutely so i mean you know when i was in high school when i was first introduced to the, the the scratch scene at the time in the back then it was like jazzy jeff mr mix richie rich um you know uh terminator x de la soul um so to, to me that era that's when i really kind of dug into it was when three feet high and rising came out uh when mm. it's a nation of millions to hold us back came out when cold cuts what's that noise came up those are the three records that convinced me like oh i need to find out you know how this works and that's when i started saying i gotta get a job which at the time was <laughs> delivering newspapers before school or mowing lawns or yeah. whatever like i need to save up and, and get a mixer and turntables and stuff like that and so that was my era, era of introduction to it and then since then obviously i've gone backwards to the pioneers prior to that the grandmaster flashes and the steinskis and the you, you know um grand wizard theodore and dst and following that, obviously, like all the Bay Area kids and the executioners on the East Coast and everybody doing all this rad stuff. So um, for me, yeah, I was a fan immediately. Like that, that year, 88, 89, that was like it. So my mom thought it was weird because I started classical piano when I was four and it was like pulling teeth to get me to practice anytime. I was just like, <laughs> why am I doing these scales? You know, I just want to go ride my bike and like hang out with my friends and I'm here like preparing for a piano competition or something and I was just not into it. but whereas the DJing and the scratching thing I would just voluntarily lock myself in my room for hours like 
I remember just staying up till dawn, like all through high school mm-hmm. practicing. And, um, you know, at the time, I was just trying to see like what kind of new sounds were possible. And I still practice. But the thing is, the jokes on me because the stuff I used to hate practicing is the stuff I actually practice most now. So, so now for me, it's like trying to accurately bend notes in scales and interviews. Mm. That's what I'm spending most of my time just trying to use my twitch reflexes to do on my hands. Is like, can I can I jump a fifth, sixth, seventh, eight, you know, and and come back and actually like pull pull the record and pitch too that's like the new thing i'm trying to practice it's just like like a harmonica like when you inhale you get a different note like can you mm. do that on the turntable can you teach your hands how to do that and that's sort of what i've been mostly practicing now which is super nerdy i, I apologize for that. <laughs> no <laughs> you're at the right place where, where it was like oh okay yeah the, these are the the new fundamentals like when i really get a hold of that then it will get to that point where you know, like those, those Thelonious Monk videos where Mark was showing me, you know, I knew when I watched that, even when I still watch them, I'm kind of like, here's an instrument that's existed for centuries and he's reinventing it, but with like a level of mastery, like you couldn't believe just on the spot, just making art. <laughs> and it was like jaw dropping, you know? And I think for me, turntables, it's still, I feel like I still got like all these you know practicing dues to pay in terms of like i hear melodies in my head that i actually can't pull off on one record yet you know like mm-hmm. if you just had a an a flat cut on the record and you told me to do this melody i was like oh, i can maybe do it within a range of five or six notes but anything higher than that and i'm like i can't do it yet i haven't practiced enough so i still practice but wow it's, it's like a weird i don't know it's for some weird future music that that I think could exist, but I don't even know if like I'm gonna be able to figure it out in the next two decades. You know what I mean? It's like that kind of thing. Well, we're glad you're out there trying. All That's right, I'm awesome. trying. <laughs> yeah, it's so dope that uh you've done so many incredible things, but you're you're still reaching uh and you you still got levels to hit. Um, as we close here, I, I have to ask, do your kids know have a sense of like actually who you are? like is that is that tangible for them yet i mean who am i as it, <laughs> <laughs> we'll take That's it back you know who you are asking all the time. um i'm their father they do know that <laughs> <laughs> that's the first step from Ori i learned they yeah yeah know. um i think you know they've been to a couple of shows they think the yeah. job is weird um but they know they they see the work that goes into it like preparing for some of these these shows and productions and and I don't know I I always say like when I'm in the studio at least on these bigger more theatrical productions we're doing um where I have like a team of puppeteers and a cinematographer and a string trio like it's a lot of people to to kind of work with at the same time from many different uh you know different angles and we're trying to figure out okay how can we build something together like make a live film on stage right and um i always say if we're not laughing every five minutes then we're doing it wrong so i think they think i don't really work <laughs> I mean, they know i'm working but they think i'm just like goofing off most of the time <laughs> but then they'll see the show and they'll be like oh wow yeah i remember when you were talking about that joke or that scene and then seeing that set being built and then now how the camera's filming and how the music swells in that moment of the show like i 
they they picked up on that but i think it's um yeah i don't i i don't know i i just i just try to stay inspired for them really you know mm. uh, you, you know so if i i figured if if i'm having fun doing what i'm doing then hopefully they'll grow up to to find something they like to do too yeah that's dope thank you dad koala uh <laughs> <laughs> coming on the pod man we appreciate you yeah thanks for having me Right now, right now, we're going to get together and give you a tune that we have a lot of requests for, 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 who um you know i find the older i get the more i meet new people and they just track on to people that i've known mm. before you know what i mean like i felt I an energy of like oh you're like somebody i i would have met at a dj battle you know circa 1997 it was hella funny and like cool to kick it with totally. um so it was it was great to uh to get some of his time and really just marvel at the breadth of his work you know we I, I knew about the records and i knew he had done some film stuff but the shit he started talking about was like mind-blowing to me totally it's just like uh he is i don't feel that weird saying this i'll just say he's the most interesting turntablist like he has the he has the sense of whimsy that we talked about pretty extensively the intense chops and musicality yeah. that he talked yeah, i was gonna say about, musicality which, i didn't mm -hmm. i didn't realize i mean i didn't i kind of stopped paying attention several mm -hmm. albums ago but i was really into kid koala when he came out and uh when i did my piece on cut chemist um he told me that his first record the audience is listening is heavily influenced by kid koala that um carpal tunnel syndrome came out a little bit before that or maybe the the tape um, the tape is, I think, Scratch Happy Land, or the tape is called Scratch, Scratch, Scratch. The Ninja Tune put out the best parts of it as yeah. a 10-inch called Scratch Happy Land. Um, and it's got the, I mean, we're not supposed to say samples and stuff, but it's got the, I got a rock. Like, that is yeah. the best intro of a thing <laughs> yes. that ever existed. The where, where he takes it is so dope. Like, yeah. It's just it is just the best thing. And for you know, someone named Kid Koala to use like a children's record and then build Perfect. this like intensely hip-hop thing. And um the way he bends notes and the way he's taken the turntable musical instrument aspects so far without being weird or pretentious about it, the yep. way that his music is always fun, that there's always visuals to it, that there's always games to me. He's just such a great representative of this culture, which is often thought of as insular, dark annoying yeah. and masturbatory and he, his music is none of those things and there are many many great djs and there's people who are better at technical scratching than him maybe or better at the music part than him maybe but he combines it all in this like really charming package that's always just it it just focuses on the fun and this shit's supposed to so be fun. fun it is supposed to be fun and 
you know, the, the turntable is tradition. There was this question when all that was fomenting, right? And he referenced like, oh, you guys are from the Bay. That's where all the, the research and development of, of turntablism took place. But there was this open question at a point after, you know, a wave twisters or something like that comes out is like, where can it go? Like, where can like, you know, wiggling a record back and forth, like, where can it go? And I think Kid Koala, to your point, is the furthest out of that tradition. Like, he's taken it the furthest. Um, you know, some of those DJs became club DJs again. Some of them make beats. Kid Koala took all the energy of that era, which was kind of goofy, which was kind of fun and playful. And he still has it, even though, you know, he's he's, you know, a grown ass man now. But um, the energy there is is so amazing. And to hear about the board game, you know, everybody's trying to do these gimmicks and things with their records and more power to them, I understand. Um, his stuff always comes across as authentic. Like, yes, it doesn't totally. seem like a forced, like, we need a way to sell this vinyl. Like, he really believes in these characters. And to hear him talk about it, it reminded me of when um, we were talking to Kenny Siegel <laughs> about, about his his uh, kind of Magic the Gathering inspired rapper game that he was working on and the passion and intensity about it um, was great. So I feel like I too have kind of checked out a little bit, but it makes me kind of want to circle back. And not be like, really. I definitely want to listen to this new record. I'm not sure if I'll actually purchase or play the board game, but I do want to hear the new record. I need to check in on some of his later stuff. And just so, I don't know, I, probably, I don't know how many people listening have seen Kid Koala live, but even back in the day, even when he was very young around the carpal tunnel syndrome and uh, newphonia era, he always played with three turntables. And yep. at, just that yep. is, I think, an important innovation in the setup because yep. it's not just scratching over a loop or a break record. It's like he can make interesting music and then cut over it. In and just I get, in his in his normal setup, and that is right. like that. Just that is like it just shows you like how ahead of the curve he was at the beginning. And just yeah. I don't know, man. He's just he's like just really really cool, and he's such a good DJ. It's just in an absurd level of mastering your craft, and to hear where he's taken it and how he practices now. Not to toot my own horn for asking such a great question, but I was curious. <laughs> it was a good question, yeah. and I was like, damn, dude, like. Is not what I had in mind, but like, how often does this guy need to do a crab scratch? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. none of that shit matters anymore. It's about notes and bending notes and finding notes within scales and like whether he can replicate sort of like Western classical tradition in this new way. And mm -hmm. I, I just, I just thought that was so great. Yeah, great interview, great dude. Uh, everybody should check out the new uh, project. But yeah, it's it's another example of this interesting crossover between. Uh, hip-hop electronic music and and turntablism which um kind of got me to thinking about friend of the program uh daedalus who also brings a whimsy um to to pretty much everything he does and that i feel they like do. they that everything that they do and i feel like their approach to it daedalus might be the closest to Kid Koala in terms of like innovation. Like he yeah. is a he is a mad sci they are a mad scientist of of this beat shit in a way that uh, is always like kind of jarring to me but also super super interesting. Absolutely. Um I'm a big fan of the Icelandic uh electronic quartet Moom and mm -hmm. um I had a chance to uh 
I think had a DM conversation at some point with Daedalus about this. And I was hearing similar things in both entities music. And he, they were like, um, Daedalus was like, no, that's not actually it. I didn't actually know about that at the time. So I couldn't have been influenced oh. by it, but he, but they were fully, um, open to the idea that they were having parallel experiences and perhaps both entities were being influenced by the same things. And mostly what I was talking to them about was this concept of micro percussion that I wrote mm. about in my review of Moom's uh, album, uh, Finally, We Are No One for Wax Poetics. And the it, that time in the late 90s and early 2000s, I thought was so exciting because Marley Marl chopped drum sounds in 80 whatever yeah but these people this new generation with the mpc and with different like technology was able to slice the sounds into smudge such smaller bits yeah. bjork yeah. does this on vespertine mm. um and i it's maybe it's just an icelandic thing but um <sighs> i hear some of that in daedalus's music as well and take making things so microscopic and then zooming in on them gives music this beautiful bubbly texture that I'm that at times in my life I have been obsessed with and it, it, um, it percolates just, it percolates in this yeah. such a cool way it's like bubbles yeah. coming up out of a steam vent in the ocean mm -hmm. make mm -hmm. that actually like head nodding like really beautiful rich and thick beats if you know what you're doing for, it, for it, sure it, yeah. it is so great i just like that's that's kind of what i was hearing in both and i know that was a long tangent but the the, that's, the prep that's some, the Prefuse records of that time and that era, I think, also um, play with that. I, it's interesting though. It's a fine line. I know. I know you're a big Prefuse fan. Uh, hit or miss for me. There's a way to do it that percolates, and there's a way to do it that I feel is anxiety-inducing. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and even before the Prefuse uh, moniker became the one that um, kind of caught on, he has a bunch of different side projects Savath and Savalis and um uh gosh I can't remember the, any of the other ones right now but I'll run over to my record shelf while you're talking um and yeah. there there was always harmony there was always texture there was always melody Prep clearly a like musician the hip-hop version of it right and it's like yep. you take this Nas lyric and chop it up into these tiny microscopic beats and kind of have him saying things he wouldn't normally be saying very like, hip-hop yeah which is very hip-hop yeah, totally. Just lo I loved that at the time. Uh, we've talked about this quite a bit. It hasn't aged particularly well, but it blew my mind at the time. And um, I always thought Debris, uh, D-A-B-R-Y-E from Ann Arbor, um, who um, Prefuse and him, I think he put out his main record, Instrumental, on Prefuse's label, Eastern mm. Recordings, and they would remix each other's stuff. Um, did this like icy cold detroit version of um electronic hip-hop and had yeah. a lot of rappers on it and a lot of yeah. rappers from the d because he was from ann yeah. arbor a lot of fat cat um yep. like a lot of stuff like that he's got songs with doom he's got songs with ghostface it's just like there's just so much stuff there but i really like that instrumental hip-hop electronic music too and it's not the groovy thing i was talking about before mm -hmm. it's like i always thought of them as like shards these very yeah, sharp yeah. pieces that get stuck back together, kind of mosaic style to make something like very, very alien. It, and something that feels both familiar and super strange. Like 
I, I know how beats are made. And so when shit started going from, oh, this is a quarter note to this is a 32nd note. Right. You know, rolling in a drum pattern and doing all these things, it kind of opened up my mind. And I feel like now there's a really a rich conversation between those things. And maybe it's because of where technology is. I don't see as much of a line anymore. A quote unquote hip hop producer could do things that would be considered you know, not as hip hop back in the day, but these are just techniques that everybody uses now. And I feel like even when you hear somebody like Dilla, you can you can tell he he heard and knew about these other beat experiments that were going on. And I think the LA beat scene is one of was one of the crucibles where hip hop and electronic just completely fucking cross pollinated. It stopped and I mattering. Feel like, yep, yep. Yep. The line stopped mattering. As and, much. and just look at who the main people behind low end theory which is like the public face of this right it's daddy kev daddy who kev. is an electronic musician mastering yep. engineer great interview as we found out it was that earlier this year or late last it was year? it was earlier this year okay cool yeah, yeah. Right daddy kev, so great and then um uh d styles who is a yes, world-renowned turntablist who we've also talked to fairly recently and who's hey. demone's friend um hey. probably the greatest scratch dj who ever lived don't listen to the uh first section of this podcast to hear me contradict myself um and you know uh no can do right or now all city jimmy all city jimmy a daedalus was a was a big part of that was my first time seeing daedalus live was at was at low end and it was it was this reclamation of uh something that africa bambata asterisk started asterisk bambata That was brilliant, by the way. Um, Asterisk Bambata started uh, back in the day. Forever, for going forward, that's what it is. Yes, totally. Uh, so you, you know what I'm talking about. But this idea that um, the hip-hop sensibility is so ex- expansive that it can incorporate all these different types of music, which was Asterix's first um, innovation of style and curation. And I feel like low-end took that and then uh, kind of folded electronic music back into it in a way where hip hop heads had to kind of grapple with like, yeah, uh, Tribe Called Quest and Portishead travel on a similar frequency, right? And like, why can't you play them back to back? And so to me, those experiments kind of broke down all the walls and now beats are just so open. Like oh, beats yeah. are just beats now. And you, you have to talk about Ross G. Oh, uh, when you up. talk about this, because he yeah. has these just it, absurdly banging yeah. hip hop tracks. And then he has some stuff that's very out. And he's yeah. he, for me, he's a good kind of avatar for this. And um, Laurent Fintoni's um, excellent book, um, mm. Bedroom Beats and B-Sides, B-sides. Um, which a- anyone listening to this and knowing the names of the people we're talking about should read Get that it. book. And uh, we listened, we interviewed Laurent at one time as well. And um, I, I love that book and really helped me um, get back into thinking about things like this. Um, focuses a lot of time on Ross G and his role, not only as someone who worked at Aaron's Records and like helped people find and stock the stuff that defined this sound, but as a just a monster musician. And I think yeah. had he, his life trajectory played out a little bit differently, I think he would have gotten a lot bigger and um, more well-known yeah. outside of the LA beat scene and like maybe like, scored films and you know like just like done so much stuff and his kind of um 
approach to it as a black music is yep. extremely important yep. and African like never space letting, program. never letting you forget the African roots of all of this rhythm that we we take and kind of use in so many different ways. The African space program exactly is just like just such important um definitional stuff for that time in music. And like there are times when I especially before I I really tried to understand Ross G's music after a while. After I read the book, I was like, I gotta go back because I always kind No, of I, I remember you you I thought it was too weird on it. Yeah, yeah, I thought yeah, it was too weird, yeah. and I was like, "Oh, it's weird in the good way." Oh, in 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 the best way, and I feel like it's important to you know, in in a year where K. Trinata was the first Black artist to win um, an Electronic Music Grammy. Oh, that's absurd! Uh, absurd, right? But true, and it, the shit's been around for ten plus years. The the fucking category. So, um, an artist like Ross G. kind of cementing like this is where the music comes from, and using all of the all of the pieces and fabrics very in a sometimes in a, a Sun Ra S type of way where mm-hmm. there's just shit coming in left and right and you have no idea where it's going or coming from. Um yeah, totally good call. I feel like um beats, you know, lo-fi and also live beat production like the 404 era is taking things in interesting directions. Sometimes I go, is it more is is sometimes I'm like, is rap messing things up? Because now, because but, but, but hear me out. Rap rappers sound great over you know Nicholas Craven is a is a beast at this. Rappers sound great over a fucking three second soul loop that just looped up and we figured this out. I don't know when, maybe ten or so years ago. Fucking Marsberg. Marsberg. Yeah, exactly. Marsberg. Rock Marciano showed you that actually to make a good rap song. All you need is really uh, the right loop and and you're straight. Like you you actually don't need anything other than that. You got to be dope on the mic. Atmosphere. Yeah. Y- yeah. You can create this atmosphere. What my fear is that, and, and I've seen a couple of live production sets lately that I'm like, <laughs> oh, um, that's all we're doing. <laughs> like that's it. So I, my, my fear is that rap being the common denominator um, it's kind of watering down some of this type of stuff. Everything is of a similar tempo. I think the lo-fi movement, which there's there's controversy around it, but um, it's this homogenizing of a thing that was really interesting and kind of all over the place for a little bit. And so I, I see those as errors, right? There's like beat scene and now we're in something else and I don't know quite what to call it or quite you what it You never know like, until but it's over, right? You look back and you're true. like, oh, that's what that was. That's what that was. Until Laurent writes the next book, we yeah. shall not know. But um, <laughs> but yeah, no, good. Uh, hopefully you guys are, are, are following us. I feel like the UK heads will fuck with this episode real tough. I, I feel so. like we, I feel like we, uh, we, we covered a lot of ground there. Um, Nate, this fucking Saturday, yeah uh, we're we're hanging out with prince paul like we what, are what's going on dude in like, store performance by prince paul at needle to the groove records that's the homies record shop and uh plattern will be there easy hey. will be there we will be there albert jenkins gonna be there basura gonna be there hey. um you're hosting it so you know it's Apparently. gonna be hosted uh very efficiently um right. so yeah we're gonna have a good time i'm really looking forward to it um uh, we've interviewed Prince Paul several times before, but I've never nice actually met him in real life. So looking forward to that. 
um seeing the flyer today i was like oh we're supposed to play native tongue stuff that makes it so much easier oh you saw the theme yeah Yeah. no i saw you were like i was like oh good um so that that's it i mean it's not easy but it's like it just now you understand i know where to pull from yeah totally so yep uh we'll see kind of what what ends up happening with that but yeah super excited about it um we'll post the flyer around and stuff and small record store though so if you really you know i, I actually got an email from somebody that's like is, is paul gonna sign stuff uh, apparently he will but you you gotta get in there early so it starts at two o'clock uh ninth and santa clara in downtown san jose it's gonna be a righteous good time uh but they're they're capping the attendance so and the party that's happened the night before is already sold out uh, platter's native tongue party with uh with Prince Paul and um, the automator hosted by Dell is already sold out. So um, don't sleep. Happy to be a part of it. Shout out to Needle to the Groove Records. Shout out to Prince Paul, who I feel like will be taller than I think he is. <laughs> I feel I like he's, somehow, I know he's in extremely good shape. Yeah, yeah. Apparently a, a healthy food eater. So maybe he can him and Mayhem Loren are going to make uh, honest men of us all. Dude, that's so funny you mentioned that. On Saturday, I went hiking and I stopped. I didn't bring water because I kind of went on a whim. I always keep like my hiking shoes in the car so I could just go whenever I want. So I went and like climbed this hill in Morgan Hill, basically. And um, when I was coming back, I was like, okay, I definitely need to get some fluids in me. Like that was a little too strenuous to not have water with me. That was stupid. And I I was a good person. I bought bottled water and some cashew. Hey, no, I was I thought I, I, they're really good gas station cashews, and I'm still eating them. And my wife's like, "Where these come from?" I was like, "The gas station." You can thank Mayhem Loren for that. <laughs> you know, I wanted to buy many other things, but I was like, his voice was in my head. They did not have bananas, but they had they had uh, cashews, and I was like, "Okay, I, I'm I, a good person." The ghost of Mayhem Loren has has bullied me into buying bananas and cashews as, as well <laughs> um so you never know what you're gonna get on on the dad bar rap pod you could get a dietary advice you could learn about different musical movements uh you could fuck with us on patreon if you really want to if you really want to get down with the team uh nate and i just did our uh dissection of the aoi art of official intelligence de la soul series over or the, the artificial over the intelligentsia <laughs> yes well 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 played well played i'm gonna um, go back and change it so it says artificial like a-r-t-i-f-i-c-i-a <laughs> good times uh dope segment you should check that out you can also hear nate's radio show nate of fly sporadic if you're uh if you're paying attention to the to his bookings <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we got the Gems Gems playlist, all kinds of fly stuff. The community is growing, which is really dope to see. And uh, we appreciate everyone's support there. You can still find us on Twitter for the time being. Uh, tomorrow is going to be super fun. I think um, we'll be smoking the indictment pack tomorrow on Twitter. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> um, but we can also get with us on Instagram at dadbodrappod. And we just appreciate the hell out of y'all for listening we'll be back next thursday dead by rap most of those who believe they should stop find it very difficult to do so they find it's become a deeply ingrained habit a habit they can't change just because they want to. 
I know about these things because I've been through it. We invite you now to listen, and we wish you every success. However, as a beginner, it's best to just kill everyone as fast as you can by using the pump. Button.